Hello, I'm Michael Delgado, and I'm pleased to present the best of our podcast from this tumultuous and anxious year. The pandemic will still have us in its grip for many months in 2021, but with a vaccine on the way and the hope of a more sane national leadership, I, for one, am excited to see the backside of 2020. Over the year, I tried to steer our podcast conversations away from the pandemic and its effect on my guests' artistic practice or their exhibition schedules. My reasoning is rooted in a belief that while in the midst of a once-in-a-lifetime event, there can be no perspective or real insights gained beyond immediate reaction. Most of the reactions that we are having are the same for everyone and therefore not terribly interesting. How many times can you hear how frustrated, sad, lonely, anxious, and or angry everyone is? I find discussing coping mechanisms equally boring. Artists tend to be a lonely lot anyway, and after all, self-isolating in studios and being introspective is their stock and trade. But the pandemic would creep into the conversations despite my effort. And in our most recent interview, the Chinese Chicago-based video artist Yugo Zhou proved that immediacy needn't necessarily quash original insights, as she reflected on being a Chinese artist in America at a time when our nation is guided by a xenophobic blowhard who calls the international scourge the China virus. I mean, a lot of people have asked me, like, you know, what, I mean, how I feel about um, being an artist uh, at this time or, like, uh, you know, being a Chinese artist in America. Mm. Uh, but I think one of the most interesting or intriguing aspects for me of the American um, cultural, American urban city is... Uh, the cultural diversity, you know, and people's openness to that diversity and uh, its impact on uh, people's behaviors and lifestyle. So uh, as as a Chinese and an immigrant with a relatively more reserved cultural upbringing, and this has inspired me to um, to be an artist here and to interpret the American culture and scenery from a perspective of an outsider and a part of, also a part of this diversity. So I think ultimately, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, inherently we are the same. You know, we, we kind of shares, uh, shares the same core humanity. Um, you know, the, the longing, the loneliness, uh, the joy, uh, is something that we all share as human. So I'm kind of strive to celebrate that in my work and I, I just hope that people can you know can can feel that and uh, you know and we can celebrate that together you know as human yeah the pandemic also forced us to reflect back on pivotal moments in our lives and careers in a lively conversation with Lawrence Wessler author and longtime arts and cultural writer for the New Yorker magazine Wessler describes a conflict with his editor of the time Tina Brown, who infamously is remembered at the magazine for introducing color and photography, as well as a celebrity-driven editorial slant. When Tina Brown took over the New Yorker, she came to me one day and said, we we used to have unbelievable fights, she and I, uh, just raging. Uh, The kind of thing that when you slam, that when I came out of her office, people would be leaning out of their car, of their uh, carols and saying, Jesus, what was that? <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> but anyway, so one day she, uh, fairly early on, she calls me into the office and she says, uh, she says, Ren, uh, I'm going to be doing an all California issue. And I've already secured an exclusive interview with David Geffen. And I said, geez, Tina, how do you do it? You know, and she looked at me and she said, you know, stop being sarcastic. And, and uh, she said, but I know you come from California, so you have to do one. And I, and I said, okay. She said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I actually have a good story. And she said, what's that? She said, I went to Birmingham High School. I grew up in the Valley. I went to Birmingham High School in Van Nuys. And I said, the class I, uh, I entered in September 66 and graduated in June 69. But the class that graduated just before I entered, the class that graduated in June 66, the student body vice president was Michael Ovitz. And she said, no. And I said, yeah. And then she said, I said, the student body, the head cheerleader was Sally Fields. And she said, no. And I said, yep. And I said, the head yell leader, the male cheerleader was Michael Milliken. <laughs> and she said, no. And I said, yes. She says, and I said, I want to write a piece about the student body president of that class. The guy who Michael Ovitz, you know, clawing his way to the top was only able to be vice president. This guy was the president on top of everything. And she said, who, who? And I said, Bruce Kantz. And she said, who? And I said, he's a hippie farmer. He lives on a hill in Santa Cruz. He has a little vineyard. He has a goat farm. He is a completely successful human being. He has never had to look at his face in the mirror in disgust or in horror a single time his entire life. He's he lived a completely successful life. And she just looked at me with just, you know, eviscerating disgust. And she said, get out of here. Because she knew, I mean, she understood that I was attacking everything she believed in, you know, and and I walked down to my office and the phone rang and she said, you still have to do one. We live in a world where the import of chance encounters is heightened by a fear of the unseen. An invisible menace among us can bring death. But spontaneity and chance play key roles in the makeup of ourselves, despite our insistence that we create our own luck. In my interview with Light and Space pioneer Larry Bell, Larry recounts an episode of Happenstance that, in hindsight, put him on a road firmly to become an artist. Larry's trust in spontaneity might just be a product of the good fortune that seems to have come out of some happy accidents, or at least odd turns of luck. Two stories in particular come to mind. The first involves a time when Larry was enrolled at the Chouinard Art Institute as part of the now legendary class that included many of the stars who would come to define a generation of West Coast artistry. Masters such as Robert Irwin, Billy L. Bankston, John Altoon, Ed Ruscha, Lynn Folks, and Joe Good, just to name a few. There, in a drawing class taught by a sort of Obi-Wan character named Herbert Jepson, Larry experienced an epiphany. Interpreting Jepson's instruction in a way Jepson couldn't understand, Larry solidified his direction as an artist, but also caused Jepson to have him evaluated by the school psychiatrist. Jepson's reaction to his work precipitated Larry's exit from Chenard and set him on a different path. 
I suggested to Larry that odd luck seemed to be part of his success. Remembering back at the time, uh, everybody had a um, spiritual feeling about Jepson, and on the walls of his class were all were drawings done by early by former students, and they looked like they could have been done by a single person. They all were very mm. similar, and and so when people came into the class and sat down and started drawing the figure. The influence of how to do it was there on the walls. It was the, the work of prior students. However, Jepson talked about a certain, as he walked around the room looking at people's work, he talked about a certain kind of energy flow that existed in the work that once you started drawing, the drawings had a, a, a kind of a, a, a spiritual energy that finished them. Well, I interpreted that as meaning that everybody in the room was what, misunderstood what Jepson was talking about. It had nothing to do with the figure or the stuff that was around the room. It had to do with a, a, a kind of sensibility that had to do with the tactile, uh, hands-on aspect of drawing, which could be anything. It didn't have to be the figure. It could be anything. And I just, when I realized that everybody else was doing the wrong thing, I started doing something that I thought was the right thing. And that's when uh, Jepson noticed me. <laughs> Chouinard in those days was a grooming ground for Disney animators, and if not for Jepson's reaction, Larry might have been indentured to the studio system. Larry begged to differ and told me something I didn't know about him. No, I doubt it. Uh, uh, Because uh, uh, I'm really not fit for employment, and I I didn't realize (laughs) it. Um, You know, I mean, I didn't realize that then. I, I was born with a severe hearing loss that wasn't diagnosed until I was 46. I did oh terrible in school. I did, you know, and, and and the few little jobs I had, I got fired from all of them because I just did, I didn't hear when I was told to do this or that. So consequently, since I, I grew up not with, a, not being able to hear things, I never learned how to listen. But, you know, my mind would wander, and, I, and that's just the way it was. Uh, there wasn't much chance of my being in a very disciplined kind of uh, job thing where you had to do something that you were paid for. 2020, of course, also awakened the wider population to an increased awareness of racial inequality through the Black Lives Matter protests and other demonstrations against police violence, mostly sparked by the murder of George Floyd. Some artists had been addressing racial inequities for years. One such artist is Genevieve Gainyard, whose powerful work addresses what it means to have grown up in a racially divided America. In a thoughtful and timely discussion of her work, Museum of Contemporary Art Santa Barbara Chief Curator Alexandra Terry describes Gainyard's practice. Her work really explores this amazing um, cross-section of persona and identity and and explores intersectionality and so Genevieve is a is a woman of color whose mother is white and her father is black and um, 
she really is exploring the cross-sections of her own intersectionality while giving us an opportunity to think about the multitudes that are within ourselves. And that that's really something to be celebrated and something to be curious about rather than to be afraid of or nervous about. But it's not always so easy to be completely empowered by all of these intersections within ourselves. So what's so beautiful about Genevieve's work for me is that she creates you know, opportunities for people to see themselves in her work. So for instance, the, the um, installation which is entitled Black is Beautiful, which is a bedroom, and on the bed is a series of Cabbage Patch dolls which are a, have a sort of like variety of skin tones. And you have an MC Hammer doll in the space and you have a vintage record, vinyl record of The Wiz. And it's fascinating because in contemporary art, there are very few opportunities for young black and brown women and men to see themselves reflected and to see their identity reflected in the, in the artwork. And so while Genevieve's work is incredibly layered and there are so many more elements to that particular piece, one of the immediate uh, you know, opportunities there is, is for people to see themselves where they may not otherwise. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. that if, yeah, because they are such iconic things that are in the room and yeah, you would have, yeah, I had one of those or I didn't have one of those, or, yeah. And then in the, in the space right next to it, an installation called Be More. Um, it's a bathroom installation, and we see rows and rows of beauty products for black women. And there are hair straighteners and hair dye, as well as skin lightening creams and a soap called Virginity Soap, and a lot of products that seem sort of scary, potentially toxic, but clearly marketed to a very specific um, demographic. And she has hanging in this room $100 bill towels. So there's like this real commentary about, while Be More might be, can be thought of as an affirmation, it's also sort of an oppressive statement, which is implying like you're not enough. Not enough, yeah. So you need to be more. And I love the subtlety in, with which she draws into question capitalism and, and this notion of consumerism in terms of selling people the idea that they're not good enough. Mm -hmm. So black women not being European looking enough or not being white enough and needing to change their appearance to fit within that, which is clearly, you know, a prescriptive of the systemic racism in our culture, but also capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. which is just playing on those really insidious histories. Right. As we look forward to a new year that will no doubt challenge us anew, I thought I'd close out with a celebration of our fair city that, although currently under siege, still has a heart that beats strong. As part of our special feature of original readings dedicated to the idea of Los Angeles as a unique sense of cultural place, time, and energy, L.A.'s most famous poet laureate, Louis J. Rodriguez, reminds us of why we live here and why we would live nowhere else.
say I love Los Angeles is to say I love its shadows and night lights, its meandering streets, the stretch of sunset-colored beaches. It's to say I love the squawking wild parrots, the palm trees that fail to topple in robust winds, that within a half hour of LA center, you can comport in snow, deserts, mountains, beaches. This is a multi-layered city, unceremoniously built on hills, valleys, ravines. Flying into Burbank Airport in the day, you observe gradations of trees and earth. A city seems to be an afterthought, skyscrapers popping up from the greenery, guarded by the mighty San Gabriels. Layers of history reach deep, run red, scarring the soul of the city, a land where Chinese were lynched, Mexican resistance fighters hounded, workers and immigrants exploited, Japanese removed to concentration camps, blacks forced from farmlands in the south, then segregated, diminished. Here also are blessed native lands, where first peoples like the Tataviam and Tangva bonded with nature's gifts. People of peace, deep stature, loving hands. Yet for all my love, I also pour the poison time. Starting with Spanish settlers, the missions where 80% of natives who lived and worked in them died. To the ruthless murder of Indians during and after the gold rush, the worst slaughter of tribes in the country. From all manner of uprisings, a city of acceptance began to emerge. This is Riot City after all. More civil disturbances in Los Angeles in the past 100 years than any other city. To truly love LA, you have to see it with different eyes. Askew, perhaps, beyond the fantasy-induced Hollywood spectacles. LA is also known for the most violent street gangs, the largest skid row, the greatest number of poor. Yet I loved LA even during heroin-induced nods, or running down rain-soaked alleys, or getting shot at, even when I slept in abandoned cars alongside the concrete river and during all-night movie showings in downtown Art Deco theaters. The city beckoned as I tried to escape the prison-like grip of its shallowness sun-soaked images, suburban quiet, all disarming, hiding the murderous heart that can beat at its center. LA is also lovers' embraces, the most magnificent lies, the largest commercial ports, graveyard ships, poetry readings, murals, low-riding culture, skateboarding, a sound that hybridized black, Mexican, as well as Asian and white migrant cultures. You wouldn't have musicians like Richie Valens, The Doors, War, Los Lobos, Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, Hiroshima, Motley Crue, NWA, or Quetzal, without Los Angeles. War, John Fante, Chester Hines, Charles Bukowski, Maricela Norte, and Wanda Coleman as its jester. I love LA. I can't forget its smells. I love to make love in LA. It's a great city. 
a city without a handle, the world's most mixed metropolis of intolerance and divisions, how I love it, how I hate it. Zutsu writes, can't stay away, city of hunger, city of anger, Ruben Salazar, Rodney Keene, I like to kick its face in, bone city, dried blood on walls, wildfires, taunting dove whales, car fumes and oil derricks, water thievery with every industry possible, and still a one industry town, lined by those majestic palm trees, and like its people, with solid roots, supple trunks, resilient. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents and our Best of 2020 special. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel LA, the music and artist management company Regime 72, and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and AGGeiger.com. My sincere wishes for a happy new year. Thanks for listening.